0: I had a professor when I was in seminary who did a uh, postdoctoral uh, fellowship in Athens, Greece. And uh, as you may know, if you've ever ever been there, there's a hill right in the middle of the city of Athens. It's called Lycaveticus. And uh, uh, his little boy, growing up in that town, learned to say the books of the Bible Genesis, Exodus, Lycaveticus. Numbers and Deuteronomy, but uh, it is the book of uh, Leviticus. Now we're going to uh, disrupt our study in 1 Corinthians for a couple of Sundays to talk about the homosexual condition. The the reason we're doing this is because the the issue is being forced on us. And uh, my goal this morning is not to tell you what to think. That's never our purpose here at Cole Church. It's to lead you into the studi- into a study of the Scriptures so that you can make up your own mind what to think on the basis of what the Bible has to say. Our authority is our Lord Jesus. He's the ultimate authority in our life, and we are subject to the Scriptures because He was. Really, that's that's what the whole issue comes down to. Because we are Christians, we are bound by what, what the Word of God says. And uh, we need to be very sure about what the Scripture teaches on this uh, particular issue. One of the problems, as I see it, is that it's almost impossible to ga- to engage in any kind of rational debate anymore. Because if you state any opposition, whatever, to gay rights or to gay advocacy, you are labeled a homophobe. Uh, Maria Shriver, in a special uh, just recently, an NBC special, included her comments on those that were in opposition to the uh, anti-gay rights uh, legislation in Oregon, that it all comes down to fear. Uh, Scott Simon, uh, in a recent NBC uh, commentary on the, the Daytime Today show that NBC has, concluded his commentary on a particular uh, piece of legislation, the initiative in in Oregon, by saying that Jewish leaders in the community will recognize and revile the language that's found in this uh, particular initiative. His point is that the initiative really has to do with discrimination and bias and and racism and and, and prejudice. Now, Now this is the sort of thing that they were having to face over and over again. Those that that advocate gay rights have taken the higher ground. They're the more tolerant, the more loving, the more considerate, compassionate people. Those that voice any opposition, whatever, are said to be bigots who get their kicks from bashing gays. And so I think what's happened is that all of us have gotten a bit intimidated. We're not sure where we stand. Certainly as Christians, we ought to be known by our love, and we ought to love people, no matter what their condition is, we ought to be tolerant and understanding of their of their condition, and yet if we speak up, we're, we're immediately accused of being biased and bigoted and, and racist and, and intolerant. And I find Christians' minds are really muddled on this issue. I've had a number of conversations with people, both in person and, and on the phone over this matter, you know, what, what should our position be on the initiative, and, and uh, these sorts of Uh, of things. And one of the things I think has muddled our minds is that we're hearing from ministers, from Christian gay activists, from so-called certified scholars that the Bible does not condemn homosexuality. And uh, I think all of us, uh, all of us are are confused. In fact, uh, someone I read just recently raised the question whether or not uh, some of the paragons of of righteousness in in, in both the Old and New Testament David and Jonathan for example and Paul in the New Testament were not themselves gay and uh, one even suggested uh, though it was only an inference that perhaps Christ was gay because he was single and he had an all male apostolic band so I think we're confused we need to go back to what the scriptures have to say and that's our purpose for the next two Sundays now this is not so much a sermon as it is a workshop I wish we could interact Crowd's too large, but I would invite you to come up afterward and, and talk. I, I read a book years ago called Peter Parson's Diary, in which he said there are two types of sermons, just as there are two types of ways, two, two ways to construct a chair. You, you teach someone to construct a chair. You can bring a chair in here and say, this is a chair, or you can bring uh, pieces of wood in here, and together you can work on it and make a chair. And it's that latter approach that I'm suggesting this morning, that we track our way through some of the passages in Scripture that deal with this issue. And form our own conclusions. Now the first place I want you to look is Leviticus uh, 18. This particular section of uh, the law is, uh, is called by scholars the holiness code. Because it has to do with our separation, with Israel's separation from those around them. Holiness simply means being different. And uh, Israel was called upon to be different in various ways. And what made them different was their relationship to God. Fifty times in this section, the Lord says, I am the Lord. It has to do with, uh, with relationship to him. If we're rightly related to God, a certain type of behavior will characterize us. Holiness. And it's that that he's concerned about here. And in this particular section, he's talking about holiness with reference to to marriage and and sexual activities. Uh, Verse 2, speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do what is done in the land of Egypt where you lived, nor are you to do what is done in the land of Canaan where I'm bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. In other words, don't live like the people that lived in Egypt from which Israel had come, nor are you to be like the people that lived in, in, live in Canaan to which you're going. And then he spells out the difference in their behavior and the behavior of the nations around them. And he begins with the whole issue of incest. You, you are to perform my judgments and keep them. So you shall keep my statutes and my judgments by which a man may live if he does them. I am the Lord. None of you shall approach any blood relative of his to uncover nakedness, I am the Lord. That idiom, to uncover nakedness, is a reference to sexual intercourse. All, the, all scholars agree. So what he's saying is, you shall not have sex with any blood relative, which I assume would include marriage as well. You shall not, verse 8, uncover the nakedness of your father's wife, the nakedness of your sister, See, in Canaanite culture, Baal uh, frequently slept with his sister, Anat. This is what was done in Canaan. And so Moses is saying, you're not to be like those people. You're not to uncover the nakedness of your grandchildren, verse 10. You're not to uncover the nakedness of your sister-in-law, verse 11. Verse 12, you're not to uncover the nakedness of your aunt. And... uh, so forth. We'll not go through the entire passage. He's simply delineating the uh, the, the areas uh, in which it's uh, proper to marry and, and to engage in sexual relationships. And he says all these other relationships are out of bounds. Then uh, he turns to the issue of sexual brutality. Verse 19, you shall not approach a woman to uncover her nakedness during her, her menstrual impurity. The word actually means uh, hemorrhage could refer to the period immediately after childbirth as well as menstrual uh, impurity. And uh, if you just stop and think for a moment, you you see something of the brutality, the sexual brutality of that age and the lack of compassion with which men regarded their their women. Uh, verse 20, you shall not have intercourse with your neighbor's wife to be defiled with her. Adultery is is precluded forbidden. Neither shall you give any of your offspring to offer them to Moloch. Uh, The rabbis uh, have indicated because of the context of this particular passage, we're here talking about sexual sins, that he is not talking about offering up children as as a sacrifice to Moloch in the sense that they were burned, but uses a a word that means to pass through in order to pass over the fire and uh, the rabbis universally interpret this to mean consecrating to Moloch for child prostitution. Remember uh, uh, when Joe Briscoe was here; she talked about the golden children in Thailand that are sold by their parents into into uh, servitude, into prostitution. It's that sort of thing that he's describing here. And then in verse 22, you shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female; it is an abomination. And he uses a specialized word for male. It's actually the word male as we know it, not man, Adam, but male, zakhar. And I think it harks back to, uh, to Genesis 1 and the idea that God made us male and female. He differentiated the, the sexes, and the sexes are, are not to be confused. And he says a, a male is not to lie with a male as he would lie with a female. It is, he says, Tova, the Hebrew use, a word he uses. It means uh, horrifying. Has the idea of causing you to shudder, something disgusting. And then in verse twenty-three, also you shall not have intercourse with any animal to be defiled with it. He condemns bestiality. Now you see, you you don't see laws and evidence where it's universally assumed that the thing that's that's outlawed is wrong. But in Canaanite society, all of these sexual activities were acceptable. It's a simple fact. We have the literature from from Eblen. From Canaan itself, and, and we know what their sexual behavior was like. They engaged in all these practices, and Moses said, you should not do so. And in the midst of these sexual practices is this reference to homosexuality. occurs here and also in Leviticus 20 as a cross-reference. Same thing is, is said. Now, now, you will often hear it said by gay advocates what, what Moses is here prohibiting is an illicit, casual homosexual union. But that doesn't work unless you apply that principle to all of these activities. And you understand what you're left with if you do that. Then it is perfectly all right to sell your child into, in, into, sexual, uh, into sexual slavery as long as you love and care for him. Or it's all right to have adultery with your wife uh, with your neighbor's wife as long as you care for her See, it, it simply doesn't wash it doesn't work what Moses is here condemning is what we would call today homosexual practice all homosexual practices no question about that now I want you to, to go back uh, to Genesis again chapter 19 and the familiar story of Sodom And uh, the reason I want you to look at this passage is because this particular story is is understood in a different way by those that are that are advocating a gay lifestyle. and so we need to look at what the text actually says. Actually, the context of this passage goes back to chapter uh, 13 where, um, Moses says in verse thirteen of chapter thirteen that the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly, and, and sinners against the Lord. Uh, uses a, an idiom that means in God's face. You know, it's very similar to our idiom today, in your in your face. It's high-handed rebellion against God and His and His order of things. You know the story. Lot uh, abandoned the altar of Yahweh, Abraham's altar, and and uh, he he picked the grasslands of. Sodom, someone has said Abraham chose grace, Lot chose grass. And uh, he, he was caught up in that, uh, in that lifestyle. What, what you have pictured here in chapter 13 is a quiet pastoral scene, and underneath is what God actually saw, is that these men had their, had their fist in God's uh, face. Isaiah 3. Uh, in Isaiah 3, in a passage we looked at some years ago here when we were studying Isaiah, Isaiah points out, That God's people were very much like Sodom. They display their sin like Sodom, is the way Isaiah put it. They do not conceal it. What had become a a private sexual preference became a matter of public pride. And uh, it was a symbol of their resistance and their rebellion to God. Now let's go back to chapter 19. You know the story. A couple of uh, strangers who happened to be angels uh, left Abraham's tent and they journeyed down uh, to Sodom. And when they came to Sodom, they sought refuge in Lot's house, verse 4 of chapter 19. Before they laid down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, surrounded the house, both young and old. All the people from every quarter, uh, the purpose of the author here is to point out that without exception, every man in the city gathered at uh, Lot's front door. And they called to him, verse 5, And they said, where are the men who came to you today? Bring them out to us that we may have relations with them. That's the way the New American Standard Bible translates. The Hebrew word is simply know that we may know them. But Lot went out to them at the doorway and shut the door behind him and said, please, my brothers, do not act wickedly. Now, behold, I have two daughters who have not had relations with men. Uh, Again, the same word. They have not known a man which is interesting since they may have been married may give us some condition some idea of the actual condition of Sodom although it's also possible that, that they were only engaged at this point please let them bring them out to uh, please let me bring them out to you and do to them whatever you like only do nothing to these men in so much as they have come under the shelter of my roof but they said stand aside furthermore they said this one came in as an alien and already he is acting like a judge and we will treat you worse than they. So they pressed hard against Lot and came near to break down the door. And as you know, the angels then struck them with blindness, and they they finally uh, wandered away from from Lot's house. Now, there's a man by the name of Sherman Bailey who wrote a book a number of years ago entitled Homosexuali- Homosexuality in a Christian Western Tradition, in which he reinterpreted this passage, and that interpretation it, it has been used over and over again by uh, those who advocate a gay lifestyle. They point out that the Hebrew word here to have relations is the word no. That word occurs 943 times in the Old Testament, and as they say, only 14 times does it refer to sexual intercourse, and they're right. Therefore, they say, what happened here is a terrible breach of social contract that Lot came in as a newcomer and he accepted strangers into his home and uh, that was a breach of uh, Semitic uh, etiquette, uh, Eastern etiquette in those days. And what these men, all these men wanted to do was ask these strangers outside so they could examine their credentials. So they could get acquainted in that sense, uh, using knowledge or know in, in the sense that we often use it to get to know someone. And that's all that was involved here. And they also refer to a passage in Ezekiel that points out that the people of Sodom were inhospitable. Now, that's a very interesting piece of exegesis, giving giving the fact that it ignores one of the most fundamental laws of hermeneutics, and that is context. It's always context that determines the meaning of the word, not word counting. In the book of Genesis, the word no occurs 14 times only. And on 10 of those occurrences, it refers specifically to sexual intercourse. But even more damaging to Sherwin's case is the fact that right in the very next verse, or the verse after that, verse 8, it is very clear what Lot is talking about when he says, here, take my daughters and get to know them. He was not suggesting that they get acquainted with them or examine their credentials. He was saying, you, know, and, 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 you, know, you have to understand, the Bible does not condone this. This was a horrible thing that Lot was doing, but it gives you some idea you know, of, the, of the degradation of this man. What he was saying is, my, vir- my daughters are virgins. Presumably, uh, it would be better—you'd be better off to have them than have these men. So he's willing to swap his his virgin daughters for these 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 two men. You see, and right in the very context, there's a clear expression of, of sexual immorality. You know, this passage has been identified historically with with homosexuality from the very beginning. In fact, our word sodomy, which is the word we use. Is the equivalent of homosexuality in some cases, comes right from this passage. And if you want a, a clearer reference, look to the book of Jude. That's a little tiny book, it's hard to find. It's the book that occurs just before the book of Revelation in the New Testament. <clears throat> We're going to uh, take some time next week to look at this uh, book in, in detail, but I simply want to call your attention to verse 7. He's comparing the angels who did not keep their domain but abandoned their proper proper abode. He's probably referring to those angels in Genesis 6 that cohabited with human, human win, women, what we would call incubus today. And then in verse 7, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they, in the same way as these, that is the angels, indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh are exhibited as an example and undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Uh, Historians will tell us that the last stage of every society that is in decline is that homosexuality is rife. And uh, it suggests to me that we may be living on the eve of our own uh, destruction. I simply want to say that Genesis 19 That in Genesis 19, the sin of Sodom and the the sister city of Gomorrah and the other cities was the sin of homosexuality. If you just take the the text at face value, that is the issue. And that is why judgment fell on that that city. Now, uh, the next passage I want to look at is Romans 1. This is perhaps the classic passage to deal with this issue. Paul says in verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And the reason he's not is because it's the only thing that can save the world. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes it. There simply is nothing else that can salvage this world that we're living in and the people that live in it other than the proclamation of the, of the good news that God loves us just as we are and has come to pay the price for our sins that only works, Paul says if you believe it it's the power of God into salvation to everyone who believes And then he explains why it is salvation. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. In other words, it's through the gospel that God's righteousness is brought to earth. It becomes a part of our experience. It's brought from God's experience into ours. The key word here is revealed. He picks that word up again in verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed from those who suppress the truth. There are two options. We can receive the gospel and we can receive God's righteousness. Or we can reject it. And the result is that we experience uh, the wrath of God. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness that, that has to do with our attitude toward our, toward God, and all unrighteousness that has to do with our moral character. Because moral character is always linked to a relationship to God. When we begin to drift away from God, our morality begins to uh, uh, to fall apart. We have no we have no standards, and. Uh, uh, Paul says that that wrath comes because, verse 19, that which is known about God is evident within them. And I'm not going to take time to elaborate on this. What Paul is saying is that every man, has, uh, every man and woman has a knowledge of God. They actually know God because of the witness uh, of God through nature and what is within them. That is that intuitive, instinctive sense that there is a God. I have a friend of mine, some of you have been in my office and you've seen a painting, a, a print of a painting that he did some years ago. He was telling me about a a philosophy class he was in in San Jose State, and they were talking about St. Thomas Aquinas' arguments for the existence of God. And uh, his professor leaned against the wall at one point, took his pipe out of his mouth, got the saddest look on his face, and he said, I'll tell you why I know there's a God. It's because I miss him so much. And that's what Paul is saying. We, We know, we know there is a God. No one has to tell us that. You can't even curse convincingly without the name of God. I mean, you know, it just doesn't work to curse in the name of natural selection or Mother Nature or something. (laughs) We know, we know, that's that's his point. We know through what has been made. Now, the verses from 24 on describe what that wrath is. It's not God striking us down with lightning bolts. That's not the way he works. What he does is let us have our way. He gives us what C.S. Lewis called that terrible freedom that we have demanded. If we do not want God's righteousness, if we do not want to live and be loved by him, he will let us have what we want, and then our lives begin to fall apart. And the reason for that is to bring us back to God. It's not because God is pleased to display wrath for arbitrary purposes. That wrath brings us to the end of ourselves, like the prodigal son. We see what we are. We see the awfulness, the ugliness of our lives, and we want someone to set us Right, but what follows in verses 24 and on through the rest of the chapter is a description of what it looks like when God lets us have our own way. God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity that their bodies might be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie, he says. That's the first step. For this reason, God gave them over to the to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural, and in the same way also men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their of their error. What he's saying is that when we put man in the center, put ourselves in the center, then we exploit men and women, their property, and their bodies, and the result is a dehumanizing of life and a degrading of our own personal experience, and it hits us most sharply in the area of our sexuality. He is not saying that homosexuality is the worst sin. He is saying it is an evidence of how degraded we can become when we leave God out of our life. And Paul says very clearly, it is unnatural. Now, he doesn't mean by that that uh, homosexual uh, desires may not seem natural to a homosexual. It may seem very natural to them. That's not what he's talking about. He's saying it is contrary to nature. It is contrary to the order of things as God has determined they shall, shall be. It is the result of rebellion against God. Now, uh, let's look at one other passage, one that we looked at some time ago, 1 Corinthians 6. Here in this context of uh, people taking one another to law and exposing their shame before the entire world. And Paul brings uh, out this ugly list of sins, which include the sins of swindling and uh, dishonesty. and But uh, in the list he includes two words that, Uh, immediately catch our attention. Verse 9. Do you not know, 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? And then follows this list of ugly sins. Now I want you to understand, again, I I said this, uh, I hope, very clearly when we talked about 1 Corinthians 6 some time ago, but I want you to understand this. He's not here talking about those of us who fall into these sins from time to time because we will all find ourselves somewhere in this list. He's rather talking about the sins that we dwell in, those that pervade our thinking, live sins, the sins we will not give up, the sins we will not repent of, the sins that we're called to abandon and we cleave to. That, that's what he's That's what he's talking about. Now here, here's the list, verse 9. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers. Those words are uh, self-evidently clear. Nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunk, drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. God isn't great on a curse. Sin is sin. To swindle someone out of their money, to be deceitful and lie, to bear false witness. Those sins are just as serious as a sin, as sexual sins. But he does include in this list, very clearly, some sexual sins: fornication, which is sort of the general word for for casual sexual unions outside of outside of marriage; adultery, which is sexual intercourse between two people where one or the other is, is married. And the two interesting words: the first word is translated in my my Bible, um, effeminate. It's the word molokos in Greek and it's used uh, it actually means soft to the touch. It's used of John the Baptist. When Jesus said, Who did you go out into the into the desert to see? A man who wore soft clothing. Uh, it was used in the in the classical Greek world of the passive partner in a homosexual relationship. It's the way it, it was used that way in, in their literature to refer to any any male or female in a homosexual relationship who took the place of the effeminate partner, the more passive partner. Nero, for example, married a young man by the name of Sporus, and he played the part of Nero's wife, a young teenage man, and he was described as Molochus. He was the soft side of the homosexual relationship. The other word homosexual, Arseno coitus is is the word you'll recognize, the the word "coitus," Uh, the word arseno just means male, it's males in bed, males sleeping together, that's the idea. And Paul unequivocally says that it is sinful if it is practiced without repentance, without a recognition that it is sin, it is an evidence that that person is not a part of the kingdom of God. There is simply no other position that we can take. One other passage, First Timothy. Paul is describing the lawful use of the law. He says some use it unlawfully, First Timothy 1, verse 9, realizing the fact that a law is not made for a righteous man, but for those of us, we can supply. What he's saying is, uh, you know, if, if we were all righteous people, we, we wouldn't need a law. But the point is, we are not. And therefore, we need law in, in, in the sense, in our sense, under the new covenant. The law of Christ, the law that's spelled out in the New Testament. The law is not made for a righteous man, but for those who are lawless. Those who ignore the law. For rebels, those who flout the law. For the ungodly, those who have no fear of God, for sinners, for those who sin against God, for the unholy and the profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men, that's the word for fornication, and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary, contrary to sound doctrine. The sound doctrine he's referring to here is is the rule of life. Now, I don't want to leave it there. I've laid out a lot of negatives. I think the stronger argument really is a positive argument. And I want you to turn to Genesis 1 for the few minutes that we have remaining. Because for me, the most telling argument is the fact that the Bible does talk about human sexuality. And it does tell us what is good about our sexuality. And it does give us the norms, the standards by which our relationship as men and women becomes everything that, that God intends it to, uh, to be. Interestingly enough, though the Bible tells us very much about how a marriage relationship ought to be, um, a heterosexual monogamous marriage relationship ought to be handled the kind of uh, relationship we ought to have to one another, absolutely nothing is said in the New Testament about the way to handle a homosexual monogamous relationship. So often in the passages that we've been talking about, those that are in opposition to the scriptures will say, well, that only refers to homosexual rape or it refers to casual liaisons and illicit affairs. It does not refer to long-term committed relationships. But the scriptures say nothing about long-term committed homosexual relationships and as a matter of fact it uses the words that were used in the Greek world for those very relationships like uh, Nero's uh, relationship to Sporus and another man that he married uh, later on who actually became his husband and who when he died was passed on to the uh, to the next emperor and became that emperor's uh, husband the active, and less passive partners so those are the words that are used scripture does not distinguish those words it simply says that homosexuality as the ancient world knew it as it was practiced in the Greco-Roman world and in Sodom and in all other parts of the ancient world it's sinful and it's wrong it's wrong now, I want to look at Genesis uh, 2 for just a moment as you know, Moses gives us two accounts of creation. In the first, chapter 1, by the way, they're not competitive accounts, they're complementary. In chapter 1, he tells us that, that the human race is the greatest thing on the face of the earth. We have more dignity than any other parts of creation. And he shows that by chronology, that we are the last and therefore the greatest. In chapter 2, he says the same thing. He establishes the dig- dignity of the, of the human race by uh by logical means. Uh, he shows us that everything is created for us. Speaks a word, the heavens are created and then he puts uh the human race into the world uh into the world that he's prepared for him and and for her. And uh in chapter 1, he says that he he uh, created them in verse 27, he created the male and female. Created the two sexes. Why? Why two sexes? Why not just one? Well, chapter 2 elaborates on that. It's one of the most wonderful stories. I love to teach on this passage, particularly when I'm talking about marriage, because it takes us back to the origins, to God's original intent, establishes God's purpose for our sexuality. It tells us why he created us male and female. The most significant thing said about the creation of man is that it is not good for him to be alone. He creates uh, the earth, and he says, it's good. He creates the animal life, and he says, it's good. And then he creates man, and he says, something's not right here. It's not good. The man should be alone. So he sets out to give him a partner, puts him asleep, as you know, and then he creates from the man his counterpart, his alter ego, one who is very much like him but who is, is also very different. And when the man awakens, he, uh, as we often do when we... Um, Find our love, he waxed uh, eloquent and into poetry here. Verse 23, the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now listen to this. Listen to this. This is Moses' inspired divine commentary on why God created two sexes. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. Now remember to be naked, uh, to uncover the nakedness or to be naked is an idiom for sexual intercourse. And what he's saying is no shame, no embarrassment can be cast on the sex act in marriage. And he describes that marriage not as a long-term committed homosexual relationship, but a long-term, committed, heterosexual, monogamous relationship. There's the leaving of one relationship. There's the cleaving together for life. As long as you shall live, not as long as your love shall last, but as long as you shall last on this earth, you cling together and you have children. And you raise those children in the fear of the Lord. Now, Malachi's commentary on this passage is why in the world did God make one? He's talking about the woman that he made for man. Why did he make one? Because he wanted godly offspring. Though he had the residue of the spirit, Malachi says, he could have, uh, he could have created 50 women for, for Adam, he could have created 50 men for Adam, but he did not. He created one woman. And God's plan, my friends, is that one man and one woman joined together for life, committed to one another until death separates them, raising their children to the best of their ability to fear God with all of their hearts. And that is what the Bible envisions as the reason for the differentiation of the sexes. And what the Bible teaches from beginning to end is heterosexual, monogamous, Sexual expression. And it does not recognize any other form of sexual activity. Not polygamy. Not polyandry. And, you know, having several husbands. I can't imagine why anybody would want that. But <laughs> because, uh, you see, it's the one man. It violates the one man, one wife principle. Not pornography because that's private sex. Not one man and, and one woman in a, in a heterosexual monogamous relationship. Not bestiality, uh, not homosexuality. The Bible never envisions that form of sexual expression. Let me read something that one of my heroes, John Stott, wrote. "A A fact needs explanation, namely the extremely powerful drive of the sexes to each other. Whence comes this love strong as death? It's a quotation from Song of Songs. And stronger than the tie to one's parents. Whence this inner clinging to one another, this drive toward each other, which does not rest until it again becomes one flesh in the child. It comes from the fact that God took woman from man and that they actually were one flesh. Therefore, they must come together again, and thus by destiny they belong to each other. Scripture defines marriage in terms of heterosexual monogamy. It is the union of one man with one woman, which must be publicly acknowledged, the leaving of parents. Permanently sealed, he will cleave to his wife, and physically consummated, one flesh. The scripture envisions no other kind of marriage or sexual intercourse, for God has provided no alternative. Now I want you to look at one other passage, and then we're done. Matthew 19. I very frequently hear the comment that Jesus never spoke on this issue. If he was this uptight about homosexuality, why didn't he say something? My answer is he did not have to say anything for two reasons. Homosexuality was prescribed by the law, both the ancient law of Moses and the rabbinic law of Jesus' time. It was something that was, that was not countenance. All you have to do is read the Talmud. Uh, any, any of the writings of the rabbis comes very clear. That homosexuality was, in all of its forms, was was prohibited. The other reason I say that Jesus didn't have to say anything is because uh, he himself was subject to the Old Testament, just as we must be. And he affirmed, again, the principle that I just uh, spelled out when I read to you, uh, Genesis 2. The Pharisees came to him, in verse 3, and wanted to know if it's lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause. As you know, Jesus said, we're not going to talk about divorce. We're going to talk about staying married. And this was God's intent. He answered and said, have you not read, and this to the best read people on the face of the earth at that time, that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, for this cause a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Consequently, they are no more two, but one flesh. But therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. He's quoting Genesis 2 and he's saying, I submit to Moses' authority on this issue. So the Lord himself envisioned no other alternative to heterosexual, monogamous sexual activity except celibacy, which he himself chose. So there are two alternatives to us as Christians heterosexual, monogamous, sexual activity, sexual intercourse, or celibacy. There are no other alternatives. Now, we must speak the truth in love. We must speak the truth, but we must speak the truth in love. It is sinful for us to be argumentative, for us to be hostile, for us to bash gays. That is sinful and wrong. We have to... Take the classic Christian position of loving the sinner and hating the sin. We're going to talk next week about what Jude has to say about uh, about that. He uses a very colorful description. He says we must show mercy to some hating even the garment that's, uh, that's spattered with defilement. We know what homosexuality does to people. Do you know that right now the lifespan of the average homosexual male is half what is projected for the average male population, non-homosexual population. Right now, uh, in Massachusetts, when we were on our sabbatical, I picked up a newspaper, and this was in 1990, 91, in the Boston Globe. Right now, the number, or that was in 1990, the number one killer of males in Massachusetts is AIDS. And that's not to speak of the terrible deterioration of, of, of soul. See, what homosexuals want It's what we want. The the homosexual condition is the human condition. We want boundless love. We want to be accepted. We want to be affirmed. And I understand the hunger of their hearts, but they're going about it the wrong way. And the result is the result that always follows any action taken contrary to the will of God. It always results in deterioration of, of the human personality. So because we love people in the gay community we must lovingly but straightforwardly speak to them the truth and we must do so even in the face of this compassionate argument that homosexuals cannot help themselves that this is a uh, not a learned response or a chosen response but a genetic or biological uh, uh, problem. Let me just I'm going to talk more about this next week. I don't have time to document this now. But uh, I talked uh, just this last week to a man who, who is a, uh, a psychotherapist, whose who's father you may know, Horst Klaus Hoffman, when he was here a few weeks ago, who is the head of OJC, the organization that we're sending Clark and, and Ann Pettigore uh, to work with. Uh, Doctor Hoffman works with homosexuals. He's had some uh, 100 hom- over 100 homosexuals in in, in counseling over a, a period of years, and he has done a lot of thought. Uh, he's, taken, uh, he's done a lot of research and done a lot of thinking about this issue. His son, as I said, who's also a psychotherapist, says that the research that's been done is highly suspect that no real scientist accepts the validity of the conclusions of those that believe that homosexuality is, uh, is genetic or biological. Uh, I won't go into detail now. The... Um, the the best uh, explanation seems to be now something that happens in very early childhood, and uh, where there is a a very distant father uh, who who frustrates a boy's attempts to try to identify with his father, or a, a smothering, dominating woman that that, uh, that that keeps a young man from finding his independence. Although in all cases that's, that's that even that is not is not true. It seems to be. Uh, some learned response that is a result of early childhood experiences, perhaps even a a seduction and the pleasurable experience that flows out of that. But let me say this. Even if we discover that homosexuality has a genetic or biological origin, that should not stop us from speaking uh, the truth to them for two reasons. Number one. Even now, there are certain behaviors like alcoholism that they believe may be traceable to some genetic uh, uh, malfunction. We still restrain the behavior of alcoholics for their good and for the good of society. The second thing I would say, and this for me is is much more important. The, and I have to struggle to say this uh, say this properly. The the laws of genetics and biology are not the highest laws. God himself is the one who who established those laws, and he's not subject to any of his laws. And he can change anyone. He can change anyone. Augustine said, every virtue is a miracle. And all of us have predispositions and perhaps uh, uh, behaviors that are the result both of Of learned responses, and also there may be some genetic causes. But uh, we're struggling against them. We're facing into them. We want to do something about it. And God is beginning to to change us. And that he changes us at all is a result of his his miraculous uh, doing. I just want to say, for those of you who who may be homosexual in this in this group. Some of you may have that orientation and you're not practicing. Others may be practicing homosexuals. And in a group this large, given the statistics that are handed to us, those not all those statistics, uh, I think some of them are highly exaggerated, there may be 30, 40, 50 homosexuals sitting in this group. I want to say something to you, and I want to say with all my heart. Your condition is sinful, but there's hope there's hope. I think one of the most damning things we can do is say to a homosexual, there's no hope. All the studies of homosexuals that are in therapy have established that there's between a 30 and a 60 percent cure rate. And Dr. Hoffman himself in his counseling with homosexuals in in the Republic of Germany has had a 60 percent cure rate. And in some strange twist of logic, people are telling us today because the, the cure rate is so low, there's There's no hope at all. There's no curate at all. I just want you to know that there is hope. Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6 when he gave us that list of of sins. And he said, such were some of you. But you've been cleansed. You've been purified. You've been washed. And I I want to say something else, too. You know, all of us, I think, struggle with certain sins. They're, They're the... Sins it overwhelms us time and, and time again, and, and we get discouraged and we despair, and sometimes we even get rebellious because there seems to be no point to them and there seems to be no end to them. But uh, I want you to know that one of these days it will be finished. Your struggle, your pain, your anguish will be over because our Lord is going to come back. And he's going to set things right. And that's what gives us the energy and the courage to struggle against sin. Even sin that's inborn or deeply ingrained in us. We can struggle against it. Because there is indeed hope. Now I'm going to leave this at this point. Our time is up. Uh, there are a number of other things I want to say. I'll carry, carry those over till uh, uh, till next Sunday. Let's, uh, let's pray. <clears throat> For all of us, Father, your word is to repent. Not one of us in this room has the right to sit in judgment on on someone else who's, who's sinning in ways that we don't sin because we know our own sins. One of, one of your fine acts of grace is to show us what we're really like, to, to put us in some situation where the, the real ugliness of our spirit comes out and we get to see ourselves as we are. For all of us, the word is repent. To, to change our mind about the direction we're going. To demonstrate a godly sorrow against that sin. To fight against it. To resist it with all of our strength. And to call upon you to, to be the one that, that strengthens us to the end. And though the struggle may be intense and though we may suffer, Lord, there is that, that promise of, of your abiding presence that you will never leave us or forsake us nor will you ever leave us alone you'll come after us dog our our tracks haunt us until we're willing to face our sin and set it right and so I I pray for those of this number who are homosexual who struggle with that orientation who are struggling with purity in uh, in that condition or for those that are practicing homosexuals Lord I would would pray that that they would see that your word to them is one of, of grace and love and a desire to correct and to call them back into your presence and to give them all that they need to be pure in, in heart and in mind. And may we help them. May we show love when they come out. May we not despise them or reject them, but embrace them as our brothers and sisters in Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name.